This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Dr. Amy Hogan talks about Humanae Vitae and what Pope Paul VI predicted for the culture in this document. One body. One body. Dr. Hogan is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, George Tolman. I'm coming to us live. We have Dr. Amy Hogan, who's a family physician with extra training in fertility care and um, the pro-technology. She is the main physician and owner of the One Body Clinic in Salina. She is married to Dan, and they have five beautiful living children. Dr. Amy, how are you today? I'm doing very well, and yes, that was... Gosh, in the last 10 years, I was uh, looking at my, I have uh, two little kids. I have three older kids, and we call them the bigs and the littles. Um, but the littlest uh, ones uh, was just uh, being conceived right around that time. So about 10 years ago was when we had started all of that. And uh, it just seems like time has flown. It's been a, a wonderful time. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And we're talking about humanity, oh, a very relevant topic uh, in 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 the church, and <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk about even some of the politi- po- political stuff that kind of went around this too. And so, but anyway, let's go delve into it, Doctor Amy. Can you tell us the steps that Pope Paul VI took before writing and releasing Humanae Vitae? Right. So there was a lot of things going on at the time of Humanae Vitae. I won't give away the year just yet because I think that is like it's a trivia question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of things were happening. Uh, Vatican II had started up several years prior, uh, I want to say 1963, correct me if I'm wrong on that, uh, but there was a lot going on and there was a lot of changes happening, and uh, the Novus Ordo Mass was, was written up. Um, you know, there was a lot of things that were really changing in a hurry, and it was interesting that Pope Paul VI uh, put together like a committee for marriage and family. It was with religious and lay people, married people, single people, um, that we're going to investigate the area of marriage and family and decide what to do. Was there any new discernment that the, the church could come to with all of the new available ways for family planning that were coming to market at that time? So the birth control pill was getting its start. Uh, the IUD had been around, but was making more of a, a presence. There is lots of different things happening in the area of medicine and science. And so, of course, men feeling like they're enlightened and privileged wanted to take advantage of those things. And uh, Pope Paul VI had that Committee for Marriage and Family meeting, and they had given him some of their uh, discussion points. And then uh, he went uh, to his, you know, probably in lots of prayer. He said he was in constant prayer. So that's one of the steps he did when he... Um, wrote it was that he said he's been in constant prayer over this issue and um, and then writ the encyclical so that the rest of us could be not only enlightened but also then reaffirmed and renewed in the church's constant and age-old teaching. So despite the fact that the committee actually released to him, Pope Paul VI, that they should consider changing the church's teaching on contraception, he came out and reaffirmed the church's age-old teaching that what God has made, you shall not mess with. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he said, you know, this is not about man in control of man. It is that God has made us and that, of course, we should uh, bow down to his amazing creation. How he made us is how we should uh, react and behave. Yes, absolutely. 
Dr. Amy Hogan, the, at that time, Archbishop Carol Way too, was he being consulted with Humanae Vitae? I don't remember. That's a good question. You know, he's written so much on the theology of the body since then. He probably, you know, had something to say. We, we know that some of the Vatican II documents, or we at least propose that some of the Vatican II documents were written by Pope John Paul II, but I don't know if Pope Paul VI yeah. had that, that time um, gotten into discussion with, with John Paul II. But, you know, if they were friends and if they had time together, I bet they would have, because John Paul II has a lot to say about marriage and family and the human body, and, of course, unraveled that with his, uh, what we call the theology of the body, the pontifical talks that were um, four years of his pontificate, uh, late 1970s to uh, 1980s. Pope Paul VI wrote about the characteristic features of married love, and those features of married love is that it is free, total, faithful, and fruitful. Could you please explain these characteristics for our audience? Surely. Um, So the, the important part here is that we have to remember that God made love, that it is part of His plan for us, and in fact, He loves us more than we love ourselves. So that it's free, that it's not coerced, that no one's pressuring, that it is uh, chosen as of free will. And I think one of our greatest gifts is that God gives us free will. And so in the sake of married love, there should be no pressure or any kind of um, reason to run to the altar, if you so to speak, but that there is love that's freely given between man and, and, and wife. Man, One man, one woman. <laughs> we got lots of rabbit holes, don't we, with politics right now. Um, <laughs> Total meaning that the whole body, the whole person, we often in medicine sometimes speak about mind-body medicine, meaning that the whole person is engaged. And also in uh, fertility care, we talk about spice of love, which is spiritual, um, physical, intellectual, communicative, and emotional love. So the total person is involved in this love. Also that it's faithful. There's um, a time in your life when you have to grow up and say that you're going to be, you know, only to one and only to the other that you commit yourself. And that's how the best of societies are built. Even, you know, before there were actual, you know, laws written, it's always been known that to cheat on someone is one of the most devastating um, things that you can do in a relationship and a marriage. So faithful meaning that it's one and only one and forever. And then finally, fruitful, which is probably the, the crux of some of Humana Vitae, which is we want to respect and owe to God what is His beauty, His co-creation. I was thinking just the other day that one thing that the angels don't get to do, the angels have a lot of privileges on us because they are completely full of knowledge. When they, um, they, they know things that we don't know, they're you know exceedingly intellectual they can pass through walls if they wanted to because they don't have a body. They don't have to abide by a physical body. So, like, the angels have some of the most awesome characteristics you can imagine, uh, but they don't have the option to co-create with God. It's one privilege that man has, an amazing privilege that we get that the angels cannot get, and it's to be fruitful, to yes. co-create with the Lord God. So fruitful meaning we're able to have children. And uh, what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful thing and a privilege and a grace to be able to co-create with our Lord and Savior, our God. What did Pope Paul VI mean when he said parenthood should be responsible? Yeah, so part of the changes that were happening in the 60s and 70s was that responsible parenthood, meaning meant to plan your family or to 
not overload the earth with uh, too many people. There was a lot of people talking about overpopulation and that we're going to run out of food and resources and all these things. And so one of the buzzwords of that time was being responsible, being a responsible parent, um, not per se overpopulating, not over-reproducing, you know, if there was a thing. But what he was trying to say is, yes, there is a duty to be responsible, that is to take care of the children that you have. But then also what was beautiful about the encyclical, so if anyone wants to get it, just pick it up or go online. You can even just uh, online search it, and it'll go straight to a Vatican website where you can read it without any, without even paying anything. Um, but what he even more beautifully pointed out is that couples are not just responsible to themselves or to society, but they're also responsible to God. And how do we repay the debt to God? Wow, that's impressive. There's no way that we can actually fully understand or ever. That's why, you know, there, God put himself in the covenant here, because we can never repay the debt to God for what to do for our sins. So the responsible parenthood that I see is what he brought out in further in the encyclical was couples actually have a responsibility to pray and to discern before God is it possible that you could add another child? Hmm. That's pretty deep. Very deep. No, very, very deep. And, you know, and even today you'll hear, you hear the overpopulation argument, you know, especially in some circles, you know, they can't stop talking about it. And I just have a little, little, little tangent here about that. I'm from Wyoming. And so to get to my, (laughs) to get to my home, there's a little stretch of of land between Casper, Wyoming and Shoshone, Wyoming. If any of you listening audience have been in that neck of the woods, you know what I'm talking about. There is literally 90 minutes of nothing. There's a rest area in between and then a little town that has a gas station. I'm pretty sure like five people, literally. Uh, but it's all like just land. It's just a, you know, a bunch of weeds and, and a bunch of dry land. And we're overpopulated. <laughs> you know, and again, that, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful for those individuals who, who make that argument. But again, my, my, the essence of the argument is we're running out of space to hold people. And if that be the case, and I should be going all the way around and seeing places where, again, we can't fit people, and that is not yeah. the case. And so, obviously, that argument is, is not founded on, on sound logic or, or data. Humani Vitae is going right against the grain of society, right? It's going right against mm-hmm. those arguments that, that want to diminish life. And Humani Vitae says, no, we're going to embrace it, <laughs> which is, again, yeah. a reason why that document, when it came out, gave some of those to be frank with you, the liberal Catholic theologians a spin. <laughs> yeah, it was. And it still was. It was It was pretty much almost like giving them a big uh, slap in the face. And what's really sad even still, when I was in Rome, oh gosh, it's been about 12 years ago now, and I was in Rome for a conference for the, um, I want to say 40th anniversary of Humana Vitae, and um, we now had 50th. And um, I was in Rome to do this conference, and I was very blessed to talk to uh, one of the cardinals that was speaking at the event. And he was speaking about Humana Vitae and how it happened when they came out, the clergy, how did they receive it? And he said that in his diocese, he was in a big group and they met even before it was fully published. And they were asking people to sign a letter of dissent, meaning that they disagree with the Pope's recommendation to keep the age-old teaching of the church. (laughs) And uh, he said you could have heard a pin drop when he said out loud. Everyone was kind of going around saying, yeah, I'll sign it, yeah, I'll sign it, yeah, I'll sign it. 
And this particular cardinal stood up and said, well, I'd like to have the opportunity to at least read it first. Uh. And he said, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> and they started to kind of harass and deride him. And uh, and I was, wow, I thought that was, it was fascinating to hear him talk about just the derision and the negativity of what was coming out of the Vatican. It's really, really interesting. Uh, it's almost like we've gone a, a 180-degree circle, but uh, we won't go there exactly yet. But the point <laughs> being is it wasn't completely well-received, and especially in those more independent nations like the United States where we thought we had it all figured out. You know, science is, is man's God, and science can do whatever we want with the human body, so therefore we have rights and privileges to do so. And he said, no, 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 we've got to listen to what Holy Mother Church said what the Holy Spirit's told me, and what is the continued beautiful propagation of what we can do to build our church. It's sort of interesting now because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of churches are slowly drying up and closing up. Well, we can point to the fact that, unfortunately, we haven't been as generous to life in the last 30 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very, very fair. Yeah, one of the for the listening audience too, just and again, this is a this is a very general comment, but I think it hits home. One of the ways to measure how healthy a church is is by looking at their baptisms and their mm-hmm. annual baptisms, because usually baptism happens when when a child is very very young. And mm-hmm. so, one of the things we're noticing, because that that data point is used by by some who study, you know, you know, religious circles, and they find, you know, they'll they'll find that those who have a, a a very low baptism rate are usually the ones who are on on. I mean, in the regression line, you know, like they're the ones who are, you know, going to be eventually being being closed up. And like you said, Doctor Amy, here again, being being open to life again, that's what helps keep the doors open um, compared to again just you know, just hoping that your finances and oh, because of our tradition, we've always had the church. And now, not necessarily. If you can't fill the pews. You're not going to be able to keep those doors open, and the only way you fill those pews is by being willing to accept um, the call that God has given us and be fruitful and multiply. So, you know, just cutting it straight, right. cutting it straight. And also and also to fill the seminaries. You know, we wonder why certain dioceses have more seminaries. Well, uh, you know, there are certain dioceses have also been more advanced in encouraging life and fruitfulness and so on. So if we don't have bigger families, it's hard to want to send your only child to the seminary. It's, it's just harder. I'm just going to say it out loud. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a way to say, if we're fruitful to life, we'll also have fruitful vocations. There's no other way about it. That's right. That's right. Again, folks, you're listening to Dr. Amy Hogan talking about Humane Vitae. Right. So yeah, when, when, when was the encyclical written? It was written in 1968, mm-hmm. and so now we've actually passed the 50th anniversary. We'd be on year 52, if you will. Uh, so, yes. 1968, summer of 68, <laughs> and um, there was a lot going on, uh, but that was when it was published. And well, he, he signed it July 25th, 1968. It was published, as I mentioned, uh, sometimes people were already arguing about it even before it was officially published, July 29th. 1968. Yep. Dr. Amy, let's keep on going here. Pope Paul VI talks about two laws, natural and evangelical. How can married life and conjugal love within married life fulfill those laws? Well, first of all, the natural law is often, probably the most often one that's broken. But if we are looking at how God made the body and how God made the couple, then the couple, when they 
when they cooperate with each other, they can be part of God's natural and beautiful law, and in fact, procreation. Now, we also, in in the, the work that I do, is there are times when people are not able to have a child or they do not want to have a child, so we encourage um, them to know their cycle or their bodies uh, for the sake of helping the body to be able to procreate. Um, but natural law has a lot of great things where we as humans had it written into our heart. We know intrinsically that we should be fair. We know intrinsically that our bodies are supposed to be taken care of and nurtured. Uh, but when we take care of the, the marriage, then it does fulfill God's natural law, which is that he made the two to become one and to be able to bring new life, as you mentioned. So certainly a couple who is being true to their marriage can fulfill the natural law in some of the most beautiful ways. But number two, also evangelical. I sometimes think, you know, that we have a lot of people that go out and about and do missions, and that's great that they can go to other countries and other lands. But one thing that as a young person, when I got married, um, what came clear to me was there's a certain part of family life and married life that needs to be pretty stable, needs to be steady. So I couldn't really run off and do missions uh, like I did when I was in college. And so the evangelization that the family does is that they help their children to understand and know the faith. And when you have children, you're going to then propagate the faith to the family that they belong to in the future or to their vocation in the future. So when you have a child, you do affect the world in an immense way. You've changed the world forever. And in that changing, there is an evangelical nature because that child goes on to their fruitfulness and their direction in their life and their vocation. So beautiful, natural, and evangelical living amongst the human family when it's done God's way. We need to take a break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about Humane Vitae with Dr. Amy Hogan. One body, stewarding God's creation. We're back on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. Humane Vitae One body. with Dr. Amy Hogan. One body. Stewarding God's creation. George Toman conducts the interview. Talking to Dr. Amy Hogan here on Humane Vitae. So, Dr. Amy, I'm going to bring us back just a little bit. I want to revisit the characteristic features of Mary Love that you mentioned um, earlier. And I just want to go through, I'm going to say these out loud. And this is part of the, the matrimony rite. So this is before the vows are said between the couple. And I want you to hear these out loud as a reminder, folks. You've all probably been to them, but I want to bring them out in context of how this connects directly with church teaching. So after the homily is done and the couple is in front of the priest, and again, the couple now shares their commitment to one another to that of the entire church. The priest asks, have you come here to enter into marriage without coercion, freely and wholeheartedly? And then the bridegroom and the bride will say, I have. As you prepared, as you followed the path of marriage to love and honor each other for as long as you both shall live, they'll say, I have. And then their third question, are you prepared to accept children lovingly from God and to bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? And they'll say, I have. And then the priest will say, since it's your intention to enter the covenant of holy matrimony, join your right hands and declare your consent before God and his church. And that's obviously when the tears start falling, right? You know, the beautiful vows. But Dr. Amy, 
that whole thing I just talked about with the liturgy is exactly what you're getting at here with the characteristic features. We just heard a consent of, of, of freedom, right? Of totality, mm-hmm. of faithfulness and fruitfulness that, hey, if you, if you are blessed with children, you will raise them up in the faith. And then again, that, that beautiful, that beautiful connection there. I don't have anything to say to that, but I just thought I'd share that out loud for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. No, and I think I had an interesting conversation with a, a mature lady this this morning. Um, she's a Catholic and a very sweet lady, eighty six year old, and she told me that her husband, when he first proposed to her, he was not a Catholic. I know this is kind of going way back to when people really did stick to their roots even stronger than they do today. But I think it was beautiful because she said to him, she said he proposed to me, and I said. And that she said back to him, but you are not a Catholic. <laughs> and she said, this could bring problems to our marriage because the fact is, is you will try to raise your children in your faith and I will try to raise my children in my faith. And if, you know, if that's trying to be together, that could cause problems. So what was interesting about the story is she said he went home to Wichita. She lived here and he lived in Wichita and he became a Catholic for her. So I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, no, it is. That is very beautiful. That is very beautiful. Yes. And gosh, you know, I, I, I do wish that we would have a little more of an emphasis on that because yes, I mean, if you do take that Catholic vow seriously it's of serious, of, yeah. it really <laughs> is serious. You have to be of one mind and one heart and, and at least one person saying, yes, this is how we're going to raise the children because otherwise there's confusion. If exactly. you have confusion, it won't help set the faith in. Exactly. And and folks, I'm not trying to suggest, because I'm sure there may be one couple that's like, well, you know, we're a split household and we don't got any issues. And I get that. I'm, I'm not trying to, like, critique it there. I'm just saying that unless you unless a couple doesn't figure that out ahead of time, if you take like, the vow seriously. Yeah, how are we going to do this? Exactly. How are we going to do this? Exactly. we got to work it out. Yeah, it becomes problematic very quickly, uh, sooner than people realize. So, no, thank you for that there, Dr. Dr. Amy. Dr. Amy, what are some of the predictions Pope Paul VI made if artificial methods were introduced into married life, and how has that come true? Yeah, it's pretty dismal, actually, because at that time it was very prophetic, but nobody wanted to see straight through that. And we've now lived through the times where the prophecies have shown themselves off. So the number one thing was he predicted an increase in marital infidelity. (sighs) And I think you could say it skyrocketed from the 60s until now. He said, well, you know, if people can use their sexuality and not become pregnant, then, you know, what's the chances that the young people would also use their sexuality in ways that are not licit? And, of course, that's what happened. Um, He said right after that, kind of 1.5 after that, I, I think of almost like, there's five different things, uh, but the, the 1.5 to that would be that there's a general lowering of morality. And so, you know, if the marriage isn't staying together, and, you know, then you're going to have children that are scarred and all these other things, but then you also have a general lowering of morality where people just don't see what's the point. And as you know, there are millions of people living together unwed right now mm-hmm. in our culture, and I think that would definitely point to a general lowering of morality. There's no other way about it. Yep. The number two thing was decreasing respect for women and wives, that there would be people that would not believe that the woman in her beautiful, delicate balance, uh, that we need to really be thoughtful and, and take care of her. And I think that that definitely has happened, too. Uh, decreased respect for women. It's almost like the women's lib movement 
took over and they said, well, we can do anything a man can do. Well, then they made her do everything a man can do plus. It's like sometimes it's like wouldn't it have been almost better if we would say that the woman's place in the home of wife, of mother, is of utmost respect and importance. I think that was definitely more valued in the 1950s and 1960s. It was just, you know, the Beaver Cleaver family. The mom stayed home. The dad went to work. And uh, not to say that women can't do what men do. We can, obviously. It's just the fact that there's things that women do that men cannot do, which is nurse a baby, for example. Correct. So, yes. so there's so many good things about women and wives, and I think, unfortunately, it has been skewed. It has been distorted uh, with the change of times and with the contraceptive movement, with the women's liberation movement. It is a bit sad. As, as a woman professional, you know, I do think that women have something to contribute to society. The question is, is, is did we take away from what the beauty of woman in her essence, in her own bodily abilities and functions is to God. And I think that's possibly true. Now, my 2.5 to number two is that people would begin to use the body like a machine or would try to say that we can control the body in all aspects. I think that we can see that's true Mm -hmm. in the area of um, assisted reproductive technology. You know, we can take and create life outside the womb, or we can, that's a whole other story, a whole other topic, donum vitae is that encyclical. Uh, but, you know, that, that we try to use the body instead of reverence the body. And so, like I said, that's kind of my 2.5 of the, the, the fold of that. Um, number three was that uh, public authorities and governments would, would use birth control methods or population control methods to try to regulate births for a country, for a society. And I think we've seen that too. You know, sometimes people do that to themselves. Other times, like China, they say, you know, this is the population measures. This is how we're doing this. If you don't abide by it, we're going to take you out of your home and forcibly sterilize you or forcibly abort you, your baby. So it's been very much, um, unfortunately, come to full fruit and full flower, very ugly flowering. Um, as, as we've seen in our times. And, and finally, to lose reverence for God and the body he created. So lots of things happened and lots of things we've seen happen um, in the last 50 years. That just yeah. goes to show the connection that the church has with the world that many people are like, yeah, the church doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, we do. And humanity vitae is proof. So anyway. Yeah. And the actual, um, there's, you know, they, they've kind of put them into paragraphs or put them in little sections. Is section 17 that has the exact. So if you wanted to even just go quicker, you don't want to take much time with this. You know, look up humanity vitae section 17 and you'll be able to read right through the predictions of what he thought would happen, the consequences of artificial birth control. Perfect. Very, very good. Thank you. And, and yeah, I don't. I don't think that committee <laughs> came to right. terms the of that committee section. That, the committee thought there would be better marriages. They thought, well, if you take the stress of children, or you take the stress of the possibility of children away, then maybe we'll have you know, couples will be happier and less stressed. Well, maybe, but that that wasn't the right direction, and it and it shows itself off as we continue to see the destruction and fallout from all the things that have happened. You know, contraceptives led to the necessity of abortion even more strongly. And abortion, of course, is is the devil's tool to destruct and destroy what God has made. So obviously diabolical. So there's so many different folds and layers, um, but it comes back to what did God do? How did he do it? How to respect that better? 
And that's why I think, like, some, there are some Catholics who go to the opposite extreme and say, we should never, ever try to stop any births or ever discern that you shouldn't have a child. You know, maybe always be freely, completely uh, ready to have a child. And that's not what the encyclical says either. Correct. You know, it says that you can discern with your spouse what's happening in society, what's happening in your marriage, what's happening in your economic finances, what's happening with the other children that you have to take care of already. If there's serious enough reasons, then you can decide that you can use an application, um, you Creighton model, you know, Billings ovulation model. There's a lot of fertility awareness-based methods now that can completely um, give honor to God with the body, understand the body, and then you desire as a couple how to how to use those days. So another one is the FEM app. We've got a lot of people now that are especially young people like apps, you know, applications on the iPhone or the Internet or whatever, um, that they can go and start charting their cycle within five minutes. My 14-year-old started with the FEM app, so femhealth.org, if anyone wants to look that up, femhealth.org to be able to have an easy way to just starting start charting cycles and understand the body. So what I love about learning about the body is that it actually helps you learn about God, that you're saying, how did he make it? What did he make? And even though sometimes our bodies don't aren't perfect, we can um, then try to do our best to put it back together the way God wants it to be. So that's part of my joy is I get to help women and, and couples to discern how the body's working and can we help it to behave better. Uh, my older boys are now uh, 16 and 19. I always tell them, women have a right to change their mind. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, fair, fair. Yeah, fair. Yeah, exactly. So trying to get them to be able to realize that, that women do change. And in fact, day to day, we have changed. So there's always a little bit of a different side, a different spin, and, and to be respectful of, of change and a good change. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Pope Paul VI talks about self-discipline within marriage. And this isn't something that's usually talked about much anymore. If it is, it's it's more of the rarity than the norm. How can all of us begin practicing mastery over ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And in the end of the document, he starts talking about different things to different folks, like how each person can take hold of this message and to apply it to themselves. But I was reading um, Our Lady of Cabejo, um, which is an apparition from Rwanda, and it was talking about that there's no salvation without suffering. And we look at the cross in the, in, the, in the main part of that because of the fact that our Lord suffered for us. He suffered and gave himself for us. But then we're asked to take up our cross and to follow him. And so some of that is going to be that we learn practically how to suffer. I'm not saying to be hurting your body. We always want to respect and love the body, but there are times when we can learn how to curb the appetites. Can we learn how to understand how to give to God what is God's and take into man what is man's? So yes, you need some food to survive. That's true. But I think our culture has, you know, an unfortunate way of changing it to, I need to serve myself and eat whatever I want whenever I want. And in the area of that, well, we're going to have suffer consequences of that. So, you know, self-mastery may be that, like in Lent, we just got through with Lent, which is a fruitful time of the year, where we try to put away some of the extra sweets, or we try to put away, you know, extra snacking, or we try to do something that is generally a practice of self-mastery. You know, it used to be in the old Church of Our Fathers that there was always meat-free Fridays. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that was to represent that we're rec- remembering the cross and what God did for us. He suffered and, and his red blood poured out from, the, from, the, from his side for us. And so looking at that as just a small area of self-mastery, could you give up one thing for one day for your Lord and Savior? You know, that's a small area of self-mastery. In fact, we can continue to do that today. It was never necessarily taken away or abrogated, but it was just said that it wasn't completely necessary. You can do something else as your penance, right? Correct. So looking for self-mastery in the area of marriage is that sometimes saying yes to the marital embrace says, I love you. But other times, you know, saying no, we should wait also says, I love you. And that's why I think not every person needs NFP. You know, I don't think that every person, if you do want to have a large, very fruitful family, that is awesome. That's a blessing. You're giving very generously to God. Um, You know, but in the area of NFP, if you say, well, you know what? That woman is overstressed, overtaxed. She doesn't have enough energy. She actually has maybe a physical condition, a medical condition where we should abstain and avoid a child for a time being then that's actually saying I love you to say no during the fertile time. So Mm -hmm. I think that NFP does give people a little bit of a temperance, or if you will, or a bit of self-mastery because they begin to discern when is the proper time, a time for the couple, the husband and the wife, to be well served by their unity. And that's beautiful to be able to talk about it together, to be able to understand it together, to be able to make decisions together is very fruitful. And they say that. People who practice NFP, natural family planning, or um, awareness-based methods of of family planning, they have a less than 3% divorce rate. Mm -hmm. And that should tell you something, that they have to work together on their own mutual goals. Are there things, in your opinion, that the Church could do better to instruct young people and those preparing for marriage to fully understand what God has designed for married couples? Yeah, this is a tough one. It has to start at home, and the church can do better by propagating and and developing her family life. Um, Like I said, right now, I don't think that the diocese, we have sort of a family life office, uh, pro-life office all combined into one. I I do think that we're going to need a a full-service family life office in order to encourage this. I think the smaller the town, too, I think that they don't always have a fertility care practitioner to encourage and to support young couples who are not ready, you know, um, if they do want to know their cycle, if they do want to understand it. One good news about COVID is that we've been able to do online teaching. So the younger the couple, sometimes they're even more comfortable doing an online or a Zoom meeting to learn their fertility care. So it's, it's more doable now. We've got to get the word out that, that really, I think some people think that people know the age-old teaching of the church. But it, the catechesis has to be there. So getting theology of the body into the junior high uh, catechism classes, um, understanding the goodness of the body a little bit sooner. And then, of course, it starts at home. You know, if the parents are propagating birth control pills to their children, that's not going to go well. Correct. But I think, you know, calling people out and saying, this is how we do this. I, I, I think I would encourage priests to also be open to talking from the pulpit, from the homily bench that, that God is good and He made life, and that it's it is it's supposed to be we're supposed to be generous to it, or we won't have a church in the next fifty years. <laughs> we yeah. won't have people in the pews if we don't give of ourselves. So I think that's some some of the ways that we could go about it. And to conclude our time together, Doctor Amy, I got one more question for you. Just go ahead and and dork out about your love for the Trinitine liturgy. 
<laughs> yeah. So the traditional mass, since this is, you know, faith of our fathers, isn't that our topic or our theme yep. this week? Yeah. It is. So the faith of our fathers, the beauty of the church is that God did this. From about 400 to 1969, we had basically the same liturgy. There was a lot of things about the liturgy. There was, you know, different places that would change and that would, but in the Council of Trent, you know, they came together and said that we're going to do the same liturgy and uh, and then propagate that in the whole world. So, you know, up until 1969, you could go to any country in the world and the Mass was basically the same. And, uh, you know, Vatican II didn't try to change all that. They actually wanted to keep, you know, some of the things that were the same, the Latin, the same. Um, and so there, there's a lot of misconception. There was actually a, a, a committee after Vatican II that changed the Mass. But anyway, well, why did I get into it? I'm just going to say that God called me, and I have, I'm, uh, you know, there's there's many things about it I still don't understand, but it gives me just a very strong sense of grounding, that there is such a sense of awe. It is very theocentric, meaning that Jesus Christ, the center of the universe, is the center of the liturgy, the center of the Mass. And when you put all the focus into what is going on there for Jesus. We're there to adore and worship. We're there to give thanksgiving. We're there for reparation. We're there for petition. And when you look at the rites and what the liturgy means, it is breathtaking. It is marveling. It is awesome. And yes, the current Mass has that feeling too at times, but what happened in the Nova Sordo Mass is that we turned the Mass around towards the people, more like a dinner table than an altar of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there, we could go into this for another three to four <laughs> hours, but the point being is is that I really felt called that God would be pleased for us to have this back in our diocese. So I kept asking Bishop, my friend Dr. Maria Rapp and I, we've been meeting from time to time with Bishop. And then I decided to uh, text one of my friend priests, uh, Father Andrew Rockers. I said, you know anybody who knows the traditional Mass? And he goes, well, why do you ask? <laughs> and at that same time, he was being transferred back to Sacred Heart. And so that was God's grace, God's doing. And so then we just kept asking Bishop till Bishop finally said, yes, it's, it's approved. And I know that a lot of people will take time to warm up to this. Why would you go backwards? Well, because, again, it was the faith of our fathers. Got one minute left, Dr. Amy, before I have to let you go. Any shout-outs or anything you want to say in front of the air before I, before we adjourn for today? Um, certainly. Last thing is, one of the another beautiful quotes that I heard someone say was that the Latin Mass is the anecdote to the Tower of Babel. Beautiful. <laughs> I, I need to, I'm, gonna, then, I'm stealing that, by the way. There. <laughs> uh, God is good, and He created the body, and He also created His body, the Church. He wants us to bring beauty and love and life to that church. And so that is our privilege. And so hopefully in honoring the body and in honoring the Mass, we can bring God's beauty to the church on earth. So thank you so much. No, you bet. Dr. Amy, thank you so much, and God bless you in your ministry. Thanks for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation Show. And thanks to all of you who support this radio network. To learn more about Divine Mercy Radio's evangelization mission, please visit dvmercy.com and also 
Download the free phone app. We'd love to have you as part of our evangelization family. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsborg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. One body. Creation. 